So this is exciting. A friend of mine last year suggested that I take a look at Catherine North's Instagram feed and maybe see if she wanted to come on my podcast. She had written a book called Holy Heathen. It's interesting because she's writing about taboo topics. I reached out and Catherine responded and said, yes, I would love to be on your podcast. So I read the book a little over a year ago. She and I recorded it. And then the timing just was never quite right to produce it. And I always planned to. I just didn't, it wasn't time yet. Well, now we're talking about a lot of taboo topics that have been silenced and the time has come for us to talk about it. So here's my interview with Catherine North and I hope you'll enjoy it. You're listening to a whole new season of Courageous Wordsmith, episode 63. This podcast presents conversation with and for real-life creatives on how we find and keep walking our unique paths. I'm your host, Amy Hallberg. Welcome to my world. Today, I'm talking with Catherine North, who is the author of Holy Heathen, a spiritual memoir. So, Catherine, what is it like to put those words, that quote, onto a page and publish it and let everybody read them? (laughs) It is a little bit like throwing up in your mouth. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) it's a little bit nauseating, a little bit terrifying. It was also incredibly liberating. Mm. It felt like freedom. And, you know, I mean, so for the people who are listening to this book, so you just published this book in 2020, Mm -hmm. right? Many things have happened in your life since then. I mean, like if you look at the bio, it's clear that this, this drops you off before a lot of things have happened. So you're going back to a much earlier time in your life. And I think that memoir writers, I think we all have an origin story that we have to write before we can move past it. But this Mm -hmm. is not, this is not new content for you. No, but I think you're absolutely right. I think that I had to write this book before anything else could come through. I sometimes say that I feel like I was like a woman who was like in labor with this book for like years. And I I was sort of waddling around and like nothing else could come through me until I gave birth to this book. But it was sort of funny where this book ends. I am a happy solo mom living in Portland, single mom of one kid. And I Mm -hmm. am currently a married mother of seven. Right. Right. And I now live on this island in this falling down house. And the book came out the same week that we closed on this house. So it has been a wild ride (laughs) to say the least. It it sounds like there's a second book that's just teeing itself up nicely after this one. There is, there is a second book. It is. Yep. Yep. First, I'm actually working on a volume of poems at the moment, which was completely unforeseen. So once Mm -hmm. the poem book is, is tied up, then yes, I am ready to write chapter two, which is about falling in love when you don't even believe in love. Right. So let's talk about why you don't believe in love because (laughs) so the story is that your parents with all the love in their hearts decide that they're going to go to Japan as missionaries to share the love of Jesus with all the world and bring you, your sibling. And I think like you had a third sibling who was born in Japan, if I'm remembering right. right. Mm -hmm. So you talk about being a third culture kid. 
You talk mm-hmm. about that fairly early on. You talk about, actually, I'm going to read you a quote if you don't mind. Sure. My parents faithfully live out the best parts of that mission to shine a kindly light onto the lonely places of the world. Nevertheless, our first few years there, we were all at sea. Our raft was leaking and the shore was nowhere to be seen. Still, we kept praying. We kept going to church. We kept doing everything with a joyful heart as unto the Lord. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) And I think you're describing, you describe that as, as what it's like to grow up as a third culture kid. So when you think of third culture kid, what does that mean? in your experience? Well, it's hard to separate out my own particular identification with that word. There is, of course, a a definition. But my personal experience of that word, I think I first heard that word when I was a teenager. And it was this new novel concept. And it was so funny because it was like everyone in our community kind of looked around at each other and we were like, oh my God, there's a word for us. And one of the interesting things about being a missionary kid is that this wasn't true for my parents, but many of my friends, my classmates, their parents had also been missionary kids. So we were, there was like a generational thing that was happening. And so it was interesting to see these adults who had been missionary kids themselves had grown up and decided to themselves become missionaries, not Mm -hmm. necessarily in the same country, but it was like all of these people looked around and sort of said to each other, oh my gosh, there's a word for this. It's, it's not just these weird feelings inside me that I don't have language for. There's a term. I think that it was a, an immense relief to many of the people in my world. Because your native language is English. Mm-hmm. But as I read this, you grew up fairly divorced from the American culture that that language came out of. Yes. Yes. Um, I went to Japanese kindergarten. I began elementary in a Japanese school, but more importantly, you know, this was the early eighties. So there was no internet, you know, long distance phone calls to the U S were a rarity. Our only contact with the States in terms of, of like pop culture was that people back in the U S would record shows on VHS tapes often including the commercials, and mail them to us, usually C-mail, and we would pop them in our VCRs and watch them. And they were these like exotic, amazing, bizarre, rare, (laughs) you know, like, what is a Cabbage Patch doll? What is that? I don't know, but I want one, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. So yeah, we, we were completely disconnected. And yet, we were not Japanese either. And, and so we did kind of create this free floating world. There is something too about being an American overseas that when you come across American things, it almost has this mystical quality to it. You know, like I am a stranger in a strange land and that's, that's the country I am from and it's happening over there and I'm over here. Things that happen in America when I've been in Germany, in my case, are much more large in my memory. Do you have that experience as well? You know, I was so young when we left. I was five. I had just turned five when my family went to Japan. And then I think the first time we went back, I was seven and a half. So, so everything it's all has that even. hazy sort of little kid quality. But I do remember returning to the States and everyone would be like, welcome home. And it all felt mm. new and unfamiliar. And so there was this strange sort of surreal quality to all of it. We, mm. we say in our family, it's almost like the worlds are her- hermetically sealed. And I think this is ah. less true now that we have internet and we all have smartphones. But 
especially back then, it was like you were in one world completely. You were totally enveloped in it. You were saturated in it. It was the world. It was all there was. And then you would get on mm-hmm. a plane and you would like go through these series of, you know, like port locks or portals. And then you would emerge and you would be in this utterly different world and the air felt different and the smells were different and the sounds were different and all the announcements were in a different language. And suddenly the food that you were craving was something that literally you hadn't even tasted or even thought about for six months or a year. And it it was almost like there was no crossover between the two worlds. Wow. And yet there is a crossover in the sense that if, if I'm reading your book correctly, the one commonality between these two worlds was your family's devotion to its Christianity, to its Christian religion. Yeah, we were this like pod. We were each other's squad, you know, and we, we were a Christian family, but we were also a family that was full of love and full of inside jokes and full of funny stories. And so we carried that with us. It was like, you know, we were, we were crabs and we carried that crab house of our family with us wherever we were. Interesting. So at what point, I mean, I'm guessing that if that's, that's your home, like, right, your family and the religion in which they're wrapped in and that, that laughter and that culture and that God and all the stuff, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. That's your home to know that it doesn't quite feel right must be really tricky because what else (laughs) Mm -hmm. do you have to turn to? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was because everything changed. We moved houses every few years. We went back and forth. We would be in Japan for a few years and then we would go back to the States for a year and then we would come back. And I went to nine different, I think going into ninth grade was my ninth school and we lived in many, many different houses. And so everything was fluid. The one thing that stayed Mm -hmm. the same was our family. And yet mm. you're right. As much as I loved my family, I felt very other. I think, I think mm. every kid is sure at some point in their life, like I must be adopted. Right? Like, <laughs> right? These cannot be my people, but it wasn't just like a, a one-off flash of emotion for me. I, I loved these people so much. And yet I could feel that I was not like them in some way that I, I deeply knew to be true and had absolutely no language. <laughs> to, and to how express. old were you when, when you became, I know I read about this in the book, but help me to place myself there. How old were you when you really were consciously aware of that difference or that, that unique quality in yourself? I think the moment it broke through was when I tried to be quote unquote, become a Christian. I tried to get saved. And I, I knew the way you did this. I had heard it a million times in church. You said a specific series of words called the Jesus prayer. And you had to say like, dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. Please come into my heart. And then that was it. You were saved. And so I was somewhere between, around five or six. And I remember being like, okay, this is it. I'm ready. I'm going to do it. And I got down on my knees and I prayed the prayer and I could feel that it didn't take and I was like, oh, no, wow. I must have done it. Okay, hold on. Let me try again. Let me try again. And I said it again, and, and I was like, I didn't feel what I thought I was supposed to feel. And this was such a horrifying divide between me and everyone I knew and trusted that I did not go to my parents crying and say, I tried to go to, you know, accept Jesus into my heart, and it didn't work. No, no, I, I swallowed it. And it was my, my first real secret. 
you have a lot of secrets. I mean, mm-hmm. it's interesting. They're not they're not secrets that maybe would be scandalous, but secrets like the teacher who tells you that you write good essays and and you're you're inside your mind you're questioning whether he has any legitimacy because he's actually telling you you're doing a good thing. <laughs> what was this strange mysterious creature? A teacher who was kind? What? What is what is what's going on? There's guess what's the game? What's the what's the gig? <laughs> right, because I mean like I'm reading some of these things, okay, and as a former teacher, I mean like I I I know the educational system. It's it's hard to create a good educational system, but some of the things that happened in the various schools you went to, they range from benign neglect to literal human rights abuses. Yes. And I, I mean, like, I won't spoil what happens, but there, but there's a range of various teachers. Mm-hmm. And so this one really stands out because mm-hmm. it's so foreign to everything you've experienced up until that point, it seemed to me. Yeah, absolutely. It was grade five. Um, I had been to Japanese public school. I'd been to public school in the United States. I had been to a series of small independently run schools ranging from like a school that was sort of held in someone's home to a more established Christian school run by people who truly had no business doing anything with children. And then grade five, fifth grade, I arrived and and my parents had, had helped to create this little sanctuary and it was a one room schoolhouse. And it was in this giant building, which housed our mission like headquarters. So there was kind of an air of like a lot of people running around doing things, but there was this little classroom in the back and it was surrounded by forest. And there were only, I think five or six kids. And we had this wonderful teacher and I was, it was so different than anything I had ever experienced that it was like, I, I didn't even know how to trust it. I didn't know how to believe it. I sort of kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. But eventually, eventually it was like, I could feel something in me relax Well, this is an echoing theme because there's this teacher, right? And there's, there's a couple of mentors who show up where it's kind of like on the one hand, you want to let yourself trust them and you kind of let yourself trust them, but, but you're always sort of wavering between these two polar spaces. It seems to me, I think of like the, there's a dance teacher that you meet Mm -hmm. who tells you that you promise and you want to believe her, but you can't quite. Yeah, I I couldn't quite, and I didn't understand that promise has to be backed up with hours and hours of practice. And right, right, because I was so afraid, and I was so deeply convinced of my own kind of wrongness. <laughs> mm-hmm. I I drew my own conclusions, which were really stupid, bad, like flawed, incorrect conclusions. That like, okay, I'm just not meant for this, and so I just took myself out of the running. But. Okay. But, and yes, I'm like nodding my head over here. It's kind of like there's little, it's like gradations of opening up, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's this, okay, no, I can't. Yes, I can. No, I can't. No, I can't. You get yourself to Bryn Mawr, which is a big departure. It is unlikely. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's such a big, and you choose it because it feels like an act of delicious rebellion, yes. as, as least as I read it. Oh, yes. And, and, and I can tell there's, there's a teacher there that I just love, an, an English professor, mm-hmm. where she's telling you to move beyond the formulaic, right? She's telling you to move beyond the expected, and yet she isn't able to move beyond the expected herself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And I, and I find it, it, I mean, it's this beautiful story where you see in her, it's almost like you're seeing in her something she doesn't see the same way she's seeing in you something you don't see this beautiful mirror. And to me, that feels like a pivot point somehow. Does it feel like that to you in the story? That's so interesting. I never thought of it that way, but when you put it like that, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a a series of interesting relationships with teachers throughout my life that actually continues even as I'm, I'm an adult. I'm, I'm hungry for knowledge. I want to learn everything. If I could just go to school forever, if I could get endless masters, I don't think I'd ever get bored. And yet I also find myself deeply skeptical and, you know, kind of, and probably a total pain in the ass to teach anything because I'm always asking like, well, but why? And how do you know? And are you sure? And well, what about this? And, but Right. And so <laughs> there is sort of this But that is the work of a memoir writer. Don't you think? I mean, that is the work. You could put all this stuff on the page. I'm, I'm curious how long you said it took you a long time to write it. Oh my gosh. I'm it curious took me how ten, long. 10 years. 10 years. Yeah. yeah. But it takes that long because it requires that kind of reflection, right? You can't just say things in a book like this. I mean, I suppose you could, but but you're digging into, you know, sacred tradition that. You, you know, you'd better, you'd better really think it through. I'm wondering how much that weighed on you as you were writing this book. Well, the only way I was able to write the first draft at all was to tell myself that it was just for me and no one was ever going to see it. And I was doing it purely as a, 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 like a therapeutic act. I was doing it for my own healing, mm. which was total bullshit. And I knew it. I also deeply wanted to share my story with the world because I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always wanted to write. I think that, that words are this like oh my gosh, unbelievably potent form of magic. And they had the power to transform and heal and change the world. Anyway, I got excited. But I had to tell myself, I'm just going to write it once for me. Because I, it was the only way that I could like get out of my own way enough to let myself, to let myself write it. And then I wrote it and then I, I did, oh my God, like a thousand drafts. And I went looking, so there's like the story of writing it. And then there was the story of publishing it, which was in many ways, its own sort of hero's journey. And that's part of why it took so long to bring this book to the world. Because after I finished it, I sent it out to 80 million agents and no Mm. one would take me on. And I felt Uh. like, okay, well, I, I guess I guess it was just for me. Like, I, I guess that original impulse was correct. I'm not supposed to share it with the world. I'm, it's just for me. I had to just write it for me. Like, wow, that was, that was a lot of years of my life I spent on something that was just for me. And I put it in a drawer. And the reason wow. I put it in a drawer, even though everyone I knew was like, you should publish it yourself, self-publishing. It's the wave of the future. And I was like, nope, nope, nope. This book well written with as much love as I can muster. I know it will hurt people I love. It will hurt my parents. It will be probably hard on my siblings. It will probably strain or maybe even sever relationships with people who I adore who are still in the church community. And so I was Mm -hmm. like, it's one thing if I'm like, guys, I can't help it. New York called. The literary community has given me their stamp of approval. And so I have to publish it. (laughs) Right? Right. I really, really (laughs) wanted both that like permission slip and that stamp of approval and that kind of almost like a helpless victim attitude, which it's just a weird thing to say. But that was how I approached my book deal was like I wanted, I didn't want to have to say to the world, 
I wanted to tell this story. I wanted to have this little bit of deniability, like, well, it's not my fault, right? Right. Somehow that made it noble. It made it bigger than me. And so to self-publish it myself, where I was responsible for every aspect of it, from choosing a cover to hiring an editor to, you know, figuring out ISBNs, felt gratuitous. I felt like I can't, right. it was bad enough that I wrote this story. Then I also am going to be the one who does the work to like put it out into the world. Like, why don't I just spit in my beloved parents' faces? And so I put it away. When yeah. I couldn't get an agent, I put it away and it just sat in a drawer for a few years. Wow. Yeah. And what got it? So, so clearly it came out of the drawer. What happened? <sighs> I just grew up a little bit more. I just, I kept going around the spiral of my own growth and I realized that writing it was good, but it was, I was still had this like baby hanging out between my legs. I still couldn't move on. I couldn't, I couldn't really write anything else. I couldn't seem to get into creative flow. All of my ideas sort of shriveled. And I, and I, I just sort of knew, I was like, it's because I, I really want to put this book out into the world. I, not just that I want to, I feel like this is my life's work. Like, and I actually still feel this way. I feel like if I never write another book, it's okay. Because I wrote the one that I had to write. I wrote the one that was eating me alive from the inside. And then I put it out into the world by myself under my own steam. But actually I didn't do it alone. And this, this piece is important. I asked my community for help. And they all Uh knew, right? I have this incredible community of people who read my weekly missive and who have done my courses. And, you know, some of them are private clients. And some of us, we've just sort of been in this space together for a long time. And I finally said, listen, you all know how long I've been working on this book. And I was just really honest. And I was like, I can't get an agent. No, no one will touch it. And I think I want to put it out into the world on my own. and, And will you help me? And so I started a Patreon community. And yeah, and they helped me like they helped me financially. Yes. But more importantly, they Mm -hmm. were like with me and I feel so emotional. Like I get really, like I get all teary talking about them because I felt like I, there was about a hundred people in it and I could like feel them with me. I could feel their presence. I could feel them standing with me. And that gave Mm -hmm. me the courage to say like, Hey family who I adore. I, I wrote that book. I'm going to publish it. Here it is. Mm-hmm. What do you think? You know, and I think that there's this idea that somehow writers are super courageous and do it all by themselves. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is nobody does it alone. At least not if you want it to be a good book. <laughs> <laughs> you need outside perspective, but you need people who are cheering you on, who aren't, who aren't disputing the facts of the matter. They're just there to help you to tell your most beautiful story. Mm. Mm-hmm. No. And I did. I had someone who helped me with the crafting of the manuscript itself. Um, this wonderful woman named Betsy Rappaport, she helped me craft the book. And then I had my incredible Patreon community who I call Rich Juicy Starry Beauty because that's what they are to me. They were like my emotional mm-hmm. um, cohort. And mm-hmm. then, yeah, I had a copy editor and yeah, I, I had I had much help. So let's talk about, I've sort of been dancing around this, I guess we have been, but in this book, what I think is really, let's, let's say it, it's kind of damning, right? That your path out of this life into something that felt more authentic to you was basically you did 
all the things that a good Christian woman should never, ever, 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 ever do. (laughs) And you put it all on the page Mm -hmm. in glorious detail and you're like, and I'm not apologizing for it. Mm -hmm. So what was that like to put that on the page and to, I mean, was that harder than any of the rest of it or was that just part of the whole deal? You know, that part was not scary at all compared to the, the, the first few steps I took away. Hmm. So what I mean is before I did all the bad things, you have to remember mm-hmm. that first I did all of the right things, all of mm-hmm. them. I did everything. I was so good. I was so fucking good for so many years. Mm-hmm. I went to church. I prayed. I was a camp counselor. I led Bible studies. I was nice to small children. I was a virgin. I got married young. I was a virgin on my wedding night. We went to church as a couple. Like We had church groups in our house. Like I did everything. And I was so miserable. I was so sad. I was so depressed. I thought about dying all the time. It was the only way out I could believe could be a possibility for me. And so first I did all the right things and I was just utterly miserable. And I think I actually had to go that far. I think I had to be so good and have it go so badly for me (laughs) to believe that like, well, that didn't work. Like I did the hell out of it. I did, I did everything, you know? And, and, and here I am, I am like, I am crumpled on the proverbial memoirist's bathroom floor, sobbing, right? right? Like trying to think of different ways I can end my own life. And, and I think Mm. it had to get that bad in order for me to think like, well, I really, I really took that road as far as I could go. That didn't work. Okay. Let me try a different road. And then I started. Yeah, because actually, <laughs> actually, I mean, if I if I can just take us back a minute, you were on a path. At, I mean, Bryn Mawr, right? It's a women's college. Mm-hmm. It's very feminist, oh, yeah. right? You had at your disposal the 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 possibility to just you know go off roading and just be like, okay, bye, see you. Yeah. And instead, it was like you had to come back. You had to test out the proposition of a good Christian marriage. Yeah. Like you 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 had to go that far, as you say, because otherwise maybe you might have been questioning and and explaining those choices forever. Whereas there is no question. Like when you read this book, it's like, no, there's no question. She, she <laughs> yeah. isn't coming back. She has burned every single bridge. Every single one. Yeah. Maybe I had to prove it to myself. Maybe I did, yeah. but I could not deny that like, as I started to do bad things. So I had sex outside of my marriage. Well, I, I left my marriage and I, I, I had this reckless, wonderful affair with someone who I wasn't married to, which was like so bad in my world. And I drank alcohol, so much alcohol. And I smoked cigarettes and I spent my money recklessly and I didn't get a real job. And then I became an actor and I took like sexy photos of myself. Like I did all the wrong things culminating with having an abortion that Mm -hmm. was sort of like the culminating experience. And it was the thing that cracked me open it was like as far as I could go away from that good Christian girl. And it was also the thing that brought me back to this deep heart, this deep, mystical, beautiful, loving presence that I still felt under everything. And it was like I had to go as far away as you could possibly go 
from evangelical Christianity. And, and you know, if there is one issue that evangelicals are fanatic about, it is abortion. And so there I was having an abortion, finally feeling the love that I had been craving my whole goddamn life. So writing about it was nothing compared to living it. Interesting. I think, too, it's interesting that you, by the time you wrote this book, you had sat across the table with your mother. You describe how you're going to need 12 cigarettes <laughs> to get through this thing, yes. at least, yes. right? At least a dozen cigarettes. You know, so you're sitting at this table, and I just picture you and your mom sitting at the table, and, you know, clearly you are not in good shape, and clearly she's just, you know, like, so concerned about you, right? And the forgiveness at that table, right? Mm-hmm. The the absolute sin of the situation and the absolute love and the absolute forgiveness that never came through before because you were always afraid of of broaching any topics. Yeah, there there are so many conversations that never get had. And because mm-hmm. we've never had them, we have no idea how they'll turn out. Will they will they go wonderfully? Will they go terribly? We don't know. And then we are really mm. brave and we have some of them and some of them do go terribly. But this mm-hmm. one with my mother went incredibly. It was messy. You know, it was like uh, on a squirminess level, it was like a thousand. You know, it was awful yeah, in some ways. And yet it was also, I think I say in the book, like it is the deep hinge that my whole relationship with my mother turns on. Right, right. And I think that that's, you know, it's it's hard to get that. I've I've had um, I had a beautiful editor who went through my stuff and was like, Amy, that is emotional scorekeeping. That is, you know, like, and just called me out on the stuff where you know, like, it's so hard to know how far to go with that stuff. You know, you're trying to be honest, but at the same time, it can be really hard. And you do such a beautiful job of painting your mother with love and and somebody who's always doing her best. And I think that that's what at least I really take away from this book is there's always a sense that you're trying to get back to love. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's never about rebelling or trying to be bad. It's about where, where's the love in this situation and how can I embody that more mm-hmm. fully? So, and you know, I'm really glad that actually I didn't write this book in my twenties because for one thing I hadn't, you know, I was perhaps ever so slightly less mature than your average bear, but also because I was not yet a mother, <laughs> right? And mm, so having, yeah. right, I would have only written it as a daughter. And and now because of where I am in my life, I mean, I have five kids now. And so I can't help but also look through any story, both as the daughter, right, in, in terms of chronological time, I was the daughter living this story. But as I'm writing it, I am also a mother. And I'm thinking, dear God, what will my children write about me? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Don't ask my children that question, please. (laughs) So looking back over this whole experience of writing this book, putting it out there um, at this point, like I said, it's only, it's only been what, less than a year? Almost a year. Exactly. Actually. Yeah. Okay. So this experience of putting this book out, what do you know now that you wish you could tell the you at the beginning of this journey? Oh, I wish I could go back and tell myself, you will not believe the freedom 
on the other side of this. The reason that it feels like this book is trying to eat you alive from the inside is because it is actually trying to eat you alive from the inside because you have to give birth to it and it will torture you until you do. But once you do it, you will be like more glad that you did that than about anything in your life, except maybe the children you had and the the love of your life that you married. So now I've muddied the waters, but I just wish I could go back (laughs) and tell myself like the reason this feels so intense to you is because it is intense. It is because your soul is longing to tell this story because it is a story of healing and it is a story of wanting to be found and instead being the one who does the finding and then still being the one who was found. And and some of that finding and being found happened in the writing and it happened when I sent it out into the world. And so I just wish mm. I could go back and be like, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad that you did it. Me too. It's a beautiful book. If anyone else is out there wondering, I, I kept being like, well, but everybody wants to write a book. But guess what? It turns out most people don't even want to write a book. I don't really understand that as a concept, but they don't even want to. <laughs> if you want to, oh my God, do it. <laughs> you will feel so much better after you do. <sighs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, Catherine. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight. Thanks for listening to Courageous Wordsmith. Today's episode featured Catherine North. You can read about her and check out her links in the show notes. Backstage at Courageous Wordsmith, my editor for this episode was the fabulous Maddie Kelly. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help it thrive and grow organically. Please subscribe right on this page. Share it with your friends and sign up for True Lines, my letter for real-life creatives, so that you can stay current with future episodes. And... If you're feeling called to write, maybe your taboo topics, and you wonder how I can help, please check out amyhallberg.com and take a look at Courageous Wordsmith Community. It might be something for you to think about. I am Amy Hallberg, and until we meet again, travel safely.